You might not have put two and two together or realize that this podcast, it's actually produced by a nonprofit, listener-supported Wyoming Public Media. We're just a little old station housed in a basement on the beautiful University of Wyoming campus. We aren't getting paid big bucks as a for-profit business. No siree, we're making this podcast not for money, but because everyone on our team believes in what we do, telling the missing stories of the real American West. But that means we rely on people like you. If you make sure to download every episode as soon as it comes out, or have been telling all your friends what a big Modern West fan you are, or would be seriously bummed if we disappeared from your feed, If all that describes you, I wonder if you'd take a quick minute to do something for me. Get into your browser and search for themodernwest.org and find the donate button. It doesn't matter how much you commit to, $5 or $100. It just matters that you show us that you want us to keep telling these stories. My recommendation? Pause this episode and do it real quick before you forget at themodernwest.org. From Wyoming Public Media and PRX, this is the Modern West, exploring the evolving identity of the American West. I'm Melody Edwards. Before we release the final two episodes of Mending the Hoop, I wanted to bring you another behind-the-scenes conversation from this season. You might remember my friend Dr. Jeff Means from our last bonus episode. Jeff is a Lakota historian at the University of Wyoming, and he's been an immense source of guidance for me through the nuanced and often heavy topics this season has broached. Jeff and I pick up the conversation today where our last one left off. As the 19th century came to a close, the United States may have stopped direct battle with the Plains Nations, but the war was far from over. As Native communities were forced onto reservations, the U.S. now used new techniques to attempt cultural genocide, alienating children from their communities at boarding schools and exterminating the bison. Throughout this conversation, Jeff points out the ways that indigenous communities continued to demonstrate a pride in their identities that the U.S. government tried to erase. I start off by bringing up something Yufna Soldier Wolf told me a few episodes back, that at Indian boarding schools, children became hostages of the Plains Indian Wars. The real troubling and factionalizing part of it is oftentimes they were taken hostage by the Indian police. Oh, Uh, wow. Yeah, because these are people hired by the Indian agent. And so, you know, they'd get these factions working against one another, which provided them greater control. Of course, they knew everybody, right? So they know how many children you had. You couldn't lie to them. You couldn't say, oh, we don't have any kids. They could. They would actually be like, hey, where's so-and-so? Yeah, where are your three yeah. kids between these yeah. ages? We're looking for them. You know, I mean, you can try and squirrel them away somewhere, but then you're facing fines of either you're not going to get your allotment that month or, you know, other kinds of problems that will arise for you as a result of your efforts to do this. Now, some other Native Americans, though, were very eager to send their children to these schools, such as Chief Washington, right? So uh, they wanted their children to be educated so that they could come back and help the Native nation then work within the U.S. political structure. 
And that could be quite effective. But did that work out for him? To some degree, but really for for most this was a very negative experience. I mean, you're in this strange place. You're not supposed to speak your language. You have to they burnt all your clothes when you got there. <laughs> and it's like, oh, yeah. you know, what's okay. the message there? Yeah. Yeah. It's just everything about you is wrong. Everything. And this this message of unworthiness is quickly internalized by Native Americans. And it can be really problematic then for the next generations and so on. Yeah. Because I, I saw the number was like 60,000 children went to these schools. That's going to have a huge influence on people. Yeah, absolutely. Down. Most of them against their will. There are going to be a lot of runaway attempts. They're going to be as as you've seen in the news recently and so on, mm-hmm. a lot of deaths. Yeah. There are cemeteries next to every one of these schools just filled with these children who aren't going to make it. And a lot of Native American parents then are going to be far more willing to accept day schools on the reservation as a result of this so that they can at least have access to their children in the evening or summertime or something, you know, where they can maintain this connection because some of the biggest problems that emerge is literally the alienation of a generation of natives from their own culture and supposedly so that you can assimilate them into American culture, except American culture has a big, you know, don't apply here sign out. You know, we don't want you. We don't want you as neighbors. We don't want you as anything but cheap labor. And so... You know, there's no assimilation. You go back to your reservation and many of these kids, they can't even speak their own language anymore. They can't communicate with their parents. Mm -hmm. Could you imagine that? Right. You're feeling alienated at school and that everything's wrong with you at school. And then you come home and you can't communicate. Yeah. You're not even like embraced by the community. You don't Um, look. You don't look look the same. The same. Mm -hmm. You don't speak the same. You don't understand the culture as well. All of these are goals of the United States, obviously, you know, I mean, to kill the Indian and save the man. I think that we talked about last time that there was actual policies in this case, especially with Indian boarding schools where they were required to go. Families wouldn't get rations and things like that. So this seems like where we're getting into that territory of cultural genocide, where those actual policies are in place to enforce this method. Would you you kind of talk a little bit more about that? Because assimilation had always been the goal of Europeans. And the United States simply picked this up in the 1770s. But the process of assimilation at first was always assumed that it would be voluntary, that Native Americans eventually will understand the benefits of being civilized, and they will voluntarily do so. But as time goes by and it's evident that Native Americans' identity is dear to them, their religion is, and everything else, and they're not voluntarily transforming into Americans, Okay, well then, how do we go about doing this in a more effective way? And this really doesn't become too big of an issue in the United States until the California Gold Rush and the massive expansion out to the West. And you've got all these Native American reservations and these population of indigenous people, and the United States is now in control of them. And once they have that power to dictate how they're going to live on the reservation, etc. they will begin to create policies to completely eliminate Native American culture. And it's really a testament to Native American resiliency that 
despite these massive efforts for assimilation that are going to take place over 150 years, they managed to hold on to their identity. It, it seems like it's been kind of a shock to people to realize that, that, you know, these kids were taken hostage or they were a way to kind of transition out of the formal military era of the war. But I know lots of people who went to these boarding schools. That's something that lasted into the modern era, like that had only technically ended in the 70s. And so it, it seems like that we're seeing that if this was something that was implemented as a technique for war, then that's a, a war technique that lasted into the modern era. Instead of war, I would say conquest. Okay. Simply because it's a process of that settler colonial mm -hmm. manifestation around the globe where the whole point is to eliminate the native, the indigenous, to replace it with not only your culture, but also the narrative that you want to choose for your nation. In the United States, we want to eliminate the native voice so that, you know, the way they see things or saw things are unimportant. Mm. And in fact, we want to change them to the point that they adopt the narrative that the United States puts forward, that Manifest Destiny was good, that, you know, this is all for the betterment of you. Really, the entire process is a part of just that dominant culture trying to make itself more at home within the borders that it controls, right? And it's so much more comfortable to do so when the indigenous people are on board with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like it's giving, getting their stamp of approval. Yeah, sort of you way. know, it, it justifies the, your conquest, mm -hmm. right? It says, oh, see the good things we've done. Look mm -hmm. at this, you know, now they all speak English and they're Christian and they wear the right clothes and they, you know, mm -hmm. have these jobs and... So yeah, they so were forth. they were like industrial. A lot of these schools were industrial schools. Uh, Carlisle Absolutely. was called an industrial school. They were learning reading, writing, and arithmetic, but they were also learning a trade so that they could even pick up jobs afterward. It was an, another form of integration. Yeah, and this was all designed to create that mm -hmm. that labor supply, right? Except the irony is these jobs are non-existent on the on the reservation, right? I mean, you're not going to get a job as a carpenter or an engineer or anything else. So when you're training a people to be like you so that they can take part in your culture, but at the same time denying them access to the culture in any equal way, you set up a, a situation where you get what you get today, which is Native American reservations, basically as economically and politically destitute. One of the most ironic and angering parts for me is that when people say, oh, look at that reservation and all the things wrong with it, right? Oh, there's poverty and alcoholism and crime and so on. And it's like, yes, because you made it like this. You set it up, okay? You, you took a, a people that were completely self-sufficient and independent and you stuck them on this land that can't support them and you set up a system in which there's nothing but failure for them in the, in the future and you take away everything that makes them a man or a woman in their culture, and then you're shocked when there's this negative response and you, you end up with a, a community that, you know, is in the situation it's in.
one of the people that I interviewed was a representative from the Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition. And they apparently are working on a bill that would create a commission to study and investigate this history, kind of put the United States on a path, sort of the way that Canada has been going, where there's actual direct payments to survivors. Okay, I want to hear your... Uh, <laughs> you, you look somewhat dubious. <laughs> yeah, that's because I am. Okay. I'm unbelievably cynical when it comes to yeah. um, these kinds of efforts in the United States, simply because... When Congress apologized to Native Americans for everything that happened, they did so at like one o'clock in the morning in this little resolution that was attached to another completely unrelated bill. Okay. That is not how you apologize. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's like <laughs> writing, I'm sorry, on a piece of paper and throwing it in your neighbor's yard mm -hmm. uh, and assuming they're going to actually get that. Mm -hmm. And so th the. The effort would be great. I, you know, you always welcome any kind of effort by the United States to try and say, hey, let's take a look at this, right? But it has to be a serious look and it has to have an end goal. One of the biggest problems with all of these efforts is that they really don't have a finish line mm. in mind. There's no, okay, this is what we want and you know, this is how we're going to go about doing it, etc. And that could be Native American sovereignty. How do we create a infrastructures in these Native nations where they can be self-sufficient again, right? All of these things are options out there, but usually it's just kind of, well, let's see what we can do. And there's real no forethought into it. And that's what I kind of like to see. liking what you're hearing, and actually, hey, even if you don't, we would love to hear about it. Take a moment right now to leave a rating or review on your podcast app. It'll help new listeners discover the modern West so that we can keep bringing you stories about the evolving identity of the American West. Hey, thanks, y'all. This season of the Modern West is sponsored by the Argosy Foundation, committed to supporting diverse people and programs that make society a better place to live. More information is available at argosyfnd.org. The Argosy Foundation is a philanthropic organization focused on leveraging the impact of people and organizations working to make the world a better place, employing creative and entrepreneurial approaches that help people to help themselves. Argosy works to ensure that their partners become successfully self-sustaining. The intention of this work is to solve systemic problems, build teams and communities, create replicable solutions and inspire others to contribute in their own ways. To learn more about this mission and the Argosy's work, visit argosyfnd.org. I want to kind of also talk about what happened with bison. That was also happening around the same time as the boarding schools were being implemented, that, that bison were just being annihilated in a concerted effort to really damage the tribes and make it impossible for them to keep going forward in the same way that they had lived before. I wonder, as a historian, if you can kind of talk about that strategy 
Was that something that was just unique to the way the U.S. government was fighting tribes? Or is that something that happened around the world? No, that, that would be something that any invading power is going to be able to do. They look at, okay, well, how do you feed yourself? If I destroy that, I've, I have control of you now, okay, because you're going to starve to death or you're going to have to come to us and, and ask for food. So this has happened all over the world, and the United States has been very effective at it since the beginning of this country. The Iroquois called George Washington the burner of towns because his strategy, the American military strategy, was to go after the economic foundations of tribes back east, and that was almost inevitably corn. Well, this simply is translated out onto the plains with the buffalo. If we kill him, you know, then we can gain control of them. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the Plains Indian tribes and their relationship to nature. And, you know, this is treacherous territory as a journalist because, you know, there's just such stereotypes about Native Americans and their relationship to nature. So I wonder if you can help kind of just give people a little more realistic view of this issue. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and of course, I mean, the thing is, that's just human nature to be familiar with the ecosystem you live in. Mm -hmm. Okay, everybody does that. All right. The major difference between Native Americans and Western culture is the fact that Native Americans saw themselves as an equal part of that ecosystem instead of the controlling agent. Western culture from the very beginning see themselves as set apart from because it says so in the Bible, right? I mean, we are sanctified. We are set apart from Adam was given dominion over these things, right? And he was going to name them and he was going to be a steward of all of the world, right? But that clearly gives mankind that powerful position of, okay, we are the only species that really matters, right? And that flies in the face of what Native Americans thought. So there's the major difference right there. And that's why in many cases, Native Americans were unwilling to participate in mass extinction events, etc. But not universally, though. I mean, Native Americans hunted the beaver almost to extinction in the East, right? Mm. But they did so because they became so dependent upon trade that without that trade, they simply couldn't carry on as a culture. Yeah. So, so it was, it was a, yet another sort of symptom of, of contact with Yeah, with yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. In that wonderful tapestry where everything connects, mm -hmm. right? So it's really fascinating when you think about Native Americans and their relationship to nature. There's that idea that, oh, Native Americans, you know, they never left a footprint and they never get lost and, you know, <laughs> right. all this kind of it's all bunk, okay? Native <laughs> Americans changed ecosystems to fit their needs, mm -hmm. okay? Iroquois burned down entire forests so they could plant corn, okay? Hohokam built canals all throughout the Phoenix area, right? I mean, and Native Americans would start prairie fires to drive buffalo herds off cliffs sometimes, right? You do what you have to do to survive. Mm -hmm. It's important to note then that that fundamental difference really is just you know, do you have dominion over nature or are you a partner within this relationship? Mm -hmm. I think that's kind of yeah. the major distinction. And it's like, especially in the American West, we have these sort of John Muir ideas about wilderness, that the wilderness was ju is just completely untouched. And like that the Native Americans, that their whole, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of years that they weren't here actually 
interacting with this natural world and managing it in many ways, as you just were talking about some of the ways in which they were very much interacting with forests and prairies and so forth. And so that seems like part of what we're having to overcome in the way that we think about the natural world is recognizing a different sort of relationship that Native Americans had with nature than we had been envisioning. Yeah, and I think that's a far more effective relationship, actually, because this whole idea of stewardship, especially in a capitalistic society and so on, where profit is really the overriding factor that you look at if you're going to develop something or do something, right? Being a steward means simply you're in charge, right? But being a partner means you've got a little bit more responsibility. So the story I'm interested in kind of exploring with this is how a lot of tribes are really getting involved in a lot of this wildlife management, water management. And so I'm, I'm interested to hear your thoughts in terms of the arc of history, like where this might be headed in terms of tribes getting involved and what this might look like to involve them. It's complicated, yeah. obviously. There's no simple answer for this because so many Native nations have very different policies on mm -hmm. all these kinds of issues, but Native nations will almost inevitably think about the world they live in differently, okay? And that means that the more sovereignty that they can obtain, the more control over the land in which they live on the reservation is given to them, and they can actually use it the way they want to and so on, you're going to find a, a much more conservation-minded and preservation-minded way of not talking about resource extraction, but just way of life, right? I mean, the re reintroduction of indigenous plants, the reintroduction of bison, right? Mm -hmm. All of these kinds of things can be very important, not just economically and environmentally, but also psychologically for Native Americans, okay? The return of bison is, it's, boy, it's hard to explain. It means so much to so many of these nations who depended on the bison. So to have them back, is like to have a part of your family back. All of a sudden, oh my gosh, I haven't seen you in years. It's so good to have you back. And you mean so much to us and we love you and we're really glad to have you back. That's the kind of psychological and you know social effect that this can have. And environmentally, bison do a lot for the environment as well because they use the environment the way it's supposed to be used, whereas cattle, sheep do not, at least the original ecosystem. And so, there's a lot of benefits to this, and I think it's going to be able to go as far as Native American sovereignty goes, mm -hmm. okay? Now, that has always been a pendulum swing, okay, depending on which policies are in power and who's in charge of the White House and so on and so forth. You know, more freedom, ooh, less freedom. Okay, <laughs> we don't like that. And so, you know, until we get to a point where Native American control of their environments is absolute, then we're gonna to continue to have these kinds of clashes like Dakota Access Pipeline and everything else. I wonder if you can just kind of talk about as a historian, how like this whole story that we've been discussing over all of these times that we've met up, this the story of the Plains Indian Wars, the story of, of Indian boarding schools and bison removal, how that has affected indigenous communities today? The historical trauma mm -hmm. has been devastating, obviously, because again, once you're told by this dominant group 
that is fundamentally different to you in every way, language, religion, economy, politics, everything, that everything about you is wrong and you're bad inherently, just everything about you. But we can fix you if you make these changes. There's still the belief that Native Americans should be quiet because they're supposed to buy into the narrative that we've given them. So every time they raise their voice against the Dakota Access Pipeline or something else, everybody freaks out about it because that's what Native... No, shh, be mm -hmm. quiet, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But that, when you raise your voice, what you're doing is you're trying to overcome that trauma, right? And it all started in the 60s, American Indian Movement and others, right? Saying, you know what? It's, it's a good thing to be a Native American, mm -hmm. right? Red Pride all these kinds of ideas that were really a, a flower blossoming in, in, in Native American communities where, oh my gosh, I'm a young Native person and I can be proud of being a young Native person. And that's transformative, right? And so that kind of effort has been ongoing within Native communities to a large degree. But again, it's working against the tide of poverty and political impotency and everything else. So those efforts are there and, and Native Americans do generally have a different idea about who they are and their place in the world. The problem is just, you know, again, lack of sovereignty, lack of control of your own life, right? Opportunities are limited, these kinds of things. So anyway, that I'm hopeful that the trauma can be healed at some point, but it's, it's almost impossible. I mean, you know, we as individuals, we go to counselors and we talk about, mm -hmm. you know, this trauma, right? And and how this has really affected us and so on. And we try and overcome it. But that's really difficult for a nation to do, right? I mean, you can, there's, there's no national counselor. That was University of Wyoming professor Jeff Means. You'll hear from Jeff next time on Mending the Hoop when we explore what the path to greater Native sovereignty could look like. We'll hear from Indigenous leaders that want the U.S. to move beyond land acknowledgments and return the land that was promised to them in treaties. We have to go through these steps to get there. They're just really awkward. They're really uncomfortable in a lot of ways. I just hope that they really lead to true action and, and not just people stopping there, I guess. That's next time on Mending the Hoop. I'm Melody Edwards. Our story editor is Ojibwe playwright Marty Strenzelwilk. Noah Greenspan is the assistant producer and line editor. Our sound designer is Charles Fournier. Ryan Kelly is the digital producer. Thanks also for help from Tina Unger-McGee, Emily Jankowski, and Courtney Blackmore-Reynolds. To see Anna Castro's original photography for this season, go to our website at themodernwest.org. Music is by Eastern Shoshone musician Sean Francis and his band Pegasus, Klingit musician Kasky Russell, and Apache musician Andrew Vasquez, among others. Our theme song is by Screen Door Porch. This podcast was produced on the University of Wyoming campus that occupies the ancestral and traditional lands of the Cheyenne, Arapaho, Crow, and Shoshone indigenous peoples, along with other Native tribes who call the Great Basin and Rocky Mountain region home. We recognize, support, and advocate alongside Indigenous individuals and communities who live here now and with those forcibly removed from their homelands. We always love hearing from our listeners. Reach out to us at themodernwestpod at gmail.com. We're also on social media at modernwestpod. If you love this show and care about this kind of storytelling, share it with a friend or 
leave us a review. The Modern West is a production of PRX and Wyoming Public Media. One of our goals is to get a dialogue flowing about the stories that we're telling. We're hoping that you'll join the conversation. So connect with us on social media and let us know what your thoughts are, whether you agree with what you're hearing or not. We're at Modern West Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. That's Modern West Pod.